stocks that have led the market up um, and, and been responsible for the majority of the gains. That is going to be um, a cause for extreme volatility in, in the future, in my view, because these stocks are very heavily priced, and therefore, if there should be any change in the situation, their prices could come down very sharply indeed. And I, I think that we'd see um, uh, quite a lot of um, blood on the street in that, in that respect. So overall, I think people are, are not sure where to invest. They, they're not seeing anything out of Europe that's particularly good. Asia is struggling. China is, is very negative. Mm. Um, Japan has done well. But most people have missed Japan. Uh, but on the downside for Japan, the currency has weakened very strongly. So it, we, we've seen, uh, in U.S. dollar terms, we've only seen about half the gain because of the, uh, the weakness of the currency. But overall, most people, many, many of the um, retail investors and their, and their advisors are, are really just um, sort of waiting and seeing and not not committing too much to the markets. So, Stuart, you're, yeah. a fun, you're a fun guy. You talk about these things being, uh, or, you know, the the the, uh, the indices being heavily, heavily weighted to these tech stocks that have just kind of eaten yeah. up the value of it. Um, does this undermine the whole concept of an ETF? Not at all. The ETF is the beneficiary of that because it will have been invested into those stocks in, the, in a way that um, maybe active funds would not have done. Yeah, but I mean, if an ETF is supposed to give you expo broad exposure across, you know, a, a particular indice, if I buy like a Dow or an yeah. S&P 500, but it's being dominated by a few stocks, isn't, isn't that kind of the antithesis of, a, of an ETF concept? No, on the, on the upside, okay. quite the opposite. The ETF will have benefited in full because it will be tracking the index exactly as the index is weighted. Hmm. Now, the downside is, of course, if the market uh, does go down and those big stocks go down faster, then the ETF will go down in, in the same way. But on the upside, it has been certainly the beneficiary and has done significantly better, probably, than most active funds, because most active funds, fund managers will have been a bit wary of, of being too invested in too few stocks. Hmm. One, one thing that would hit the market broadly, of course, is uh, trade wars, trade friction. Barry, I know you've got your eyes on a, on a new book that just came out from a former U.S. trade rep, Lighthizer. Can you tell us what, what the, what's going on there? Yeah, pretty ominous stuff. Robert Lighthizer was President Trump's trade ambassador, and he applauds the Biden administration for following the Trump policies, particularly on tariffs. You remember uh, President Trump used to say, I'm the tariff man, and uh, indeed he is. And most of the tariffs that have applied to Chinese goods coming to the States are still in place. Lighthizer is saying, let's do more. Let's put tariffs on all Chinese goods entering the United States market. He also thinks that the World Trade Organization should be revamped and that uh, tariff structures within the WTO need to be changed, that there should be a removal of the most favored nation or normal trading status for Chinese goods into the U.S. market. In other words, he wants to get tougher. And he wants more export controls on goods coming in from China that are strategically important. I hasten to say, none of this is going to happen. Not immediately. <laughs> Not immediately, but, but... But it is very significant that a man of Lighthizer's strategy, who, stature, who is a trade lawyer, and is still, despite having put all these Trump tariffs into place, now finds that the Democrats are going along with him. So... 
Yeah. You almost have to say, watch out ahead, because there could be more friction between the United States China on trade. And it's, even if uh, as a Republican uh, primary seat up could even become more relevant and might be coming back to talk about that book again. Barry, stick around for the last part of the show so you can give us a view from America. Uh, and we'll thank you then. And we'd like to thank Stuart Aldcroft, the Asian fund management industry consultant, for coming on the show, as he often does, giving us his insights. Still to come in your money, Carolyn Wright will be joined by Jenny Au, the founder and CEO of Fund Fluent, to discuss what financial hurdles new startups are facing now and some of the solutions available to them to overcome funding gaps. Having a look at the markets around the region, we've got uh, the Nikkei 225 is up 1%. Great Cosby holding flat, basically. ASX 200 is up 0.65%. Hang Seng Futures Index up 0.246%. Today, weather mainly cloudy with a few showers. Uh, max temperature 32 degrees. Right now, it's 27 degrees Celsius and 91% humidity. And now the news with Andrew Chorosky. At least four people have been killed by a Russian missile strike on the center of the Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk. More than 40 others were wounded when a restaurant and shopping area were hit. It's feared many people may be trapped under the rubble. The BBC's Myanne Jones reports. A rescue operation is underway, with security agencies providing emergency services at the scene and evacuating victims. People are still believed to be under the debris. Local authorities say the area had a high concentration of civilians. Social media and drone footage from the scene show significant damage to the buildings, some of which have been reduced to rubble. Kramatorsk has often been hit by missiles. In April of last year, a Russian airstrike hit the city's railway station, killing more than 60 civilians and wounding at least 120. The U.S. Supreme Court has rejected an appeal by Republicans that, if successful, would have given state-level politicians greater control over the running of federal elections. Republican lawmakers in North Carolina had argued that under the U.S. Constitution, state legislatures should have the sole authority to decide who votes, where, and how in congressional and presidential polls. Olivia Dalton is the White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary. This has been an enormous priority for the president and the vice president uh, since the day that they entered office to strengthen and shore up voting rights in this country. And so we're pleased that the Supreme Court uh, rejected the extreme legal theory uh, presented in this case, which would have interfered with state governments, which would have opened the door for politicians to undermine the will of the people, and would have threatened the freedom of all Americans to have their voices heard at the ballot box. A report by the U.S. Justice Department has found negligent federal prison staff contributed to the suicide of the high-profile sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Here's the BBC's David Willis. Well, this is a damning report by the Justice Department's Inspector General, Michael Horowitz. It concludes that what he calls negligence, misconduct and job performance failures, some of it rising to the level of criminality on the part of more than a dozen prison staff, was to blame for Jeffrey Epstein's death. And it says that despite regulations requiring checks to be made on inmates twice an hour, Jeffrey Epstein was left alone and unmonitored for more than eight hours before he was found dead. Britain's former health secretary, Matt Hancock, has told a public inquiry into the COVID outbreak that British government planning for a potential pandemic had been completely wrong. Mr. Hancock said planning focused on the provision of body bags and how to bury the dead rather than stopping the virus in the first place. I was assured that the UK planning was among the best and in some instances the best in the world that 
flawed doctrine underpinned many of the problems that made it extremely difficult to respond. And if I may say so, I am profoundly sorry for the impact that had. I'm profoundly sorry for each death that has occurred. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has called for a single standardized civil code applicable for all citizens, a move opposed by Muslims who are governed by special personal laws. Here's the BBC's Ambarasan Firijan. Muslim men are allowed to have four wives under Sharia law. Muslim leaders say the move to impose a uniform civil code goes against the spirit of the Indian constitution. But activists point out that the Supreme Court of India in 2017 struck down the Islamic practice of triple talaq that allowed a Muslim man to divorce his wife in minutes. Critics say the implementation of the Uniform Civil Court is one of the key agendas of the Hindu hardliners who argue that it would ensure equality. A U.S. federal watchdog says over $200 billion U.S. billion from the government's COVID-19 relief programs was probably stolen. The report focuses on two schemes designed to support small businesses. The Inspector General of the Small Business Administration says the SBA weakened its control in a rush to distribute funds to prop up the economy. That led to 17% of the money being lost to potential fraud. The Canadian government has presented the country's first climate adaptation strategy and says provincial governments are on board to improve resilience to global warming. It published the final text of its plans as the worst wildfire season on record has already destroyed an area equivalent in size to the Czech Republic. And the last portrait painted by Gustav Klimt was sold at Sotheby's in London for just over 94 million U.S. dollars, setting a new European art auction record. The celebrated Austrian symbolist Dom Mitfacher was discovered still on his easel after Klimt's death in 1918. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Welcome back to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. I'm Andrew Work. We have our Your Money feature coming up with Carolyn Wright and then a view from the U.S. with Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. But first, in the markets. U.S. markets were up overnight. With, what, with more on what's been moving Wall Street, here's John Roberts. Some really big companies making news on Wall Street on Tuesday, including Walgreens Boots, which may not be well known in Hong Kong, but is very well known here because it's the company that ousted General Electric from the Dow Jones 30. GE was a founding member of that, but Walgreens Boots ousted it a couple of years ago. Their shares down 9% on Tuesday. They lowered their full year forecast and their earnings were a miss as well. Lordstown Motors shares down 30%, closing down 17%. This company makes electric trucks in Lordstown in Ohio. Very famous because President Trump lauded the company and managed to get General Motors to sell to them rather than close the factory down altogether. Well, now a funding deal with Foxconn of Taiwan seems to have gone wrong. It's $170 million worth, and Lordstown is going into bankruptcy protection and trying to sell itself. It speaks to the fact that there will be fewer EV makers in the future. You know, America had 3,000 petrol engine car makers 
in the 1900s, and now we're basically down to three, as you know, the big three in Detroit. Ford Motor Company warning salaried staff that there are job cuts coming. Shares up 2% on Tuesday. Delta Airlines saying the passengers are choosing more expensive seats. Shares up 7%. And Carnival, which fell when its earnings came out on Monday, recovering on Tuesday to be up by about 9%. Markets in the end closing close to the day's highs. There was some strong data around. The Russia situation appears to be ebbing, and technology took the lead. So the Dow was ahead by six-tenths of 1%, the Nasdaq 1.6%, and the S&P 500 by 1.1%. The Dow snapping six days of losses. As for the cryptocurrency, well, Bitcoin was up 1.6, Ethereum 1.8, and XRP ahead by just under 1%. On Wednesday in New York, we get earnings from Micron, one of the microchip makers here, and also one of the big food suppliers, General Mills. John Roberts for Money Talk at the New York Stock Exchange. ECB President Madame Christine Lagarde said inflation in the euro area, area was still too high and punters should expect interest rates to stay higher for longer as it was too soon to declare victory. Bernard Arnault was spotted shopping in Beijing with LV CEO Bakari and Bernard's daughter Delphine Arnault who is also the head of Christian Dior Couture. He is the latest in a string of high-profile CEOs who have traveled to Beijing recently. The resort city of Nago in Okinawa saw its seaside turn red from a leak of propylene glycol into a river. The coolant chemical came from an Orion brewery and is reportedly safe, but the photos did not make you want to jump in for a swim. Breakthrough Energy Ventures, backed by Bill Gates, Jack Ma, and Jeff Bezos, recently led a $200 million funding round for Cobalt Metals. The company based in California thinks AI might be a better way to run things and that technology might be able to find new sources of minerals. The BBC speaks with the company CEO Kurt House about how they are looking for new deposits of renewable energy materials all over the world. We've built a AI platform for identifying the locations around the planet that we think are most prospective for these key materials. It's about making the most statistically rigorous predictions about the composition of the Earth's crust. And we never know exactly anything, but what we can do is make predictions with the most rigorously quantified uncertainty. So we know what's most likely to be there and we know how certain, how confident we are in that. If you know that there's newer supply of, say, again, cobalt or lithium coming on, I guess that gives people a longer term view of the price on commodity markets, too. It, it can stabilize that. For sure. I mean, we have, to, we have to bring them to market and make multiple discoveries to really affect the global commodity prices. But that is that is our goal. I mean, we're, we're in this to find the materials of the future into solving climate change is fundamentally about electrifying everything. It's fundamentally about turning everything we do now with fossil fuels into some electrically di driven process. So the, the classic example here is your electric car, right? Everyone should buy an electric car. They should they should give up their gasoline or diesel car, buy an electric car. But to build a global fleet of electric cars, that's something like two billion electric cars by mid-century. And so then we can go through the process of how much new material, how much new copper, how much new nickel, how much new lithium, how much new cobalt do we need on top of all the other uses for those materials? How much more metal do we need to build that full global fleet of EVs? And it turns out to be well over $10 trillion of new discoveries of new materials. So the challenge in front of humans here is very significant. So the energy transition requires a huge amount of building and a huge amount of new specific materials that do very valuable things. 
Uh, and to do that, we, we're going to mine a lot more of those materials. Our goal is to try to do it as efficiently as possible because it'll bring them to market for the lowest possible price and it will minimize the side effects. Do you think it possibly means finding sources in more surprising places too? You know, at the moment, we're often finding these minerals in places where you would bluntly kind of expect to find them already, right? Where we've already been mining for different types of metals or rocks or precious stones already. Do you, do you think the AI algorithms that you're developing will be able to find completely brand new sources of this stuff to, to meet that kind of need that you're talking about? I think the answer is yes and yes. I think we're going to continue to find new stuff in historic jurisdictions where where there has been a lot of legacy mining. But interestingly, almost all of the existing mines, when they were discovered, their deposits were discovered, they were actually evident at the surface. They were sticking out of the ground in rock outcrops or detectable through elevated chemical signals and soils and things like that. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. We're back on Money Talk, and I'm Andrew Work. In Your Money Today, Carolyn Wright wrestles with the struggles that businesses can face when starting up and looks at what options there are to help solve funding gaps. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Today, we're going to take a dive into the financial challenges startups face and the options that are out there for these new businesses to help with solving their funding gaps. I'm joined by Jenny Ow. She is the founder and CEO of FundFluent. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. Let's kick off with hopefully a little explainer about what FunFluent is and what it does. In the simplest terms, we are a platform that helps small businesses access funding. I mean, that is as complicated as, um, as it should be. So in our world, what funding includes grants, loans, financing. So everything that we call or classify as non-dilutive funding. So funding that doesn't require a small business to give up their ownership of the company. And really at the heart of what we do is that we are a data platform. So we exist to help small businesses to bring in all their data, whether that's digital, not digital, structured or not structured. And we help them unify that um, all these different data sources so they can manage and share their full story so they can access funding better. How important is it to support SMEs in this way to, to really help get them off the ground and, and, and get going with finding funding? I think what we see in particular and you know we being a small business ourselves and on this early journey of working out what funding options are for a business like ourselves I think one of the most important things in that journey for everyone to understand including ourselves is that we don't wake up thinking about oh I want to borrow money today or oh I need to access um, funding today. I think what instead, in particular for someone like myself who leads the company, we think about, okay, how am I going to grow my business and what type of initiatives will help me grow the business through? And the reason why it's important to understand this and hence how we end up supporting SMEs or small business in this way is that once we understand that's the problem that we're looking at, we're trying to solve a growth problem, not a funding problem. That kind of ends up manifesting in a few ways in terms of how, how important it is to help them in a way that is really friendly. So 
I go back to some of the things which are really important in this funding journey. So firstly, small businesses don't realize what type of, like, what's the full range of funding options that are available to them. And um, all the effort that surrounds the requirement checking or eligibility checking. And then once they know they're eligible, they have to submit a bunch of documents. And a lot of the documentations that surround these funding applications are usually quite manual. So how important is it to support them in a friendly and digital way is basically asking a small business the question, how important is your time? So if you ask every small business, I think one of the biggest problems that they face is not enough time, not enough resources, not enough intelligence or or knowledge around what type of funding options and hence what type of documentation or data I should prepare for these different funding um, um, solutions or opportunities. So I guess the important thing here is lifting off that burden away from small businesses and so they can focus on growing their business and yeah, like how important is it to support them is how important is it for small businesses to thrive and grow and that's 98% of businesses across Asia are small businesses. So I think it is incredibly important to lift some of that burden and pain away from them. You talk there about funding and grants and all these kind of things that these businesses may be able to access if they've managed to collate the data that they need to make an application. Can these kind of funds go to waste if people don't access them? I love the way you use the word waste. And um, this is exactly what I think the problem around inclusion and accessibility around funding is very, very much tied to, especially the funding that exists behind um, government or government grants. I think there's a lot of, you would, you would also know, and the audience would also know that there's a lot of grants or dollar amounts that's dedicated to a lot of these technology topics or small business topics and what I see or what we believe in is that there's one thing to say that you've dedicated a certain amount to these different topics or these different topics that the policy or the or the government supports through to actually being able to disperse that amount or effectively give those amounts to the right people for the right reasons. I love the word waste because every single touch point where it is hard or there's friction in terms of accessing it or providing the documentation or support material to help with that application to get access to those funding is basically waste, whether that is waste in time or waste in, okay, I have the intention to support these different type of topics with this amount of funding, but it's not dispersed in an effective or time-sensitive manner. And that is something that we're working really, really hard towards. I mean, originally, as a business, we didn't think about grants and um, programs that would fall under what we call funding. We were more thinking about, you know, business loans, lines of credits and flexible funding. But we ourselves, we aren't we went on that journey to look for all these different type of funding options. So as a small business owner, I want to make sure that I don't leave any money on the table. And this concept of waste is both sides, right? So as a small business, I don't want to leave any money on the table and vice versa from a government perspective or a non-government body who's looking to provide grant or support to small businesses. They want to make sure that 
the dedicated amount of funding goes to the right person and at the right time in an effective manner. So any mismatch in between those two intents, I would say, falls in the category of waste. And we just strongly believe that technology has a huge role to play to eliminate waste. I think the other angle is to increase accessibility. You mentioned there, interestingly, how governments are very keen and the Hong Kong government have been very, very, very keen to develop the fintech sector here. Uh, And they do seem to be providing a lot of support. So are, are they doing enough? And is there any sort of pearls of wisdom you can give to those who are starting up in business about finding their way around these systems to getting the support that they need? I think... Yes, you're right. I think every second day you'll see a headline um, where the government is quite vocal about supporting the ecosystem, not just not just um, startups or technology or just fintech. I think um, it is overall trying to really reignite the whole uh, economy, and I, I'm, I'm super excited that you know these old statements does give a lot of hope and energy to the whole economy. I think this is a great start. I think rather than pearls of wisdom or I think direct comparison, I've been in Sydney recently and I think being in a lot of different startup ecosystems or um, fintech ecosystems, one of the things which I personally really want to see or be part of even is to really bring up that vibrancy or or openness in collaboration uh, within the ecosystem. So I think it's one thing to say or dedicate certain amounts uh, towards certain topics. This is super important. I think the whole ecosystem needs that. I think the other thing that there's both public and private uh, ownership over how to really coordinate or facilitate better gel or better, better, better lubricant in terms of being able to work together as a cohort. I think this is something which I personally think there's a lot of opportunity in. So whether that's like raising awareness um, and fostering adoption of fintech solutions or working through what are some of the public-private sector partnerships to really drive that adoption or collaboration between financial products and services. I've personally seen different countries or different cities, especially those where fintechs are really thriving in, they really have a great ability to facilitate both formal and informal connections. And I think at least personally from the last two years being in this space and maybe COVID played a part of that, it's really hard to have that really genuine side of co-collaboration, partnership, having those face-to-face meetings, whether it's informal or formal. Sometimes I think Hong Kong is a bit more towards the formal end, like every type of initiative or every type of get-together feels somewhat formal with an agenda with certain outcomes that everyone's trying to drive. Really important, and I think it's a great mindset to have, but I personally feel that the ecosystem can thrive off more informal type of a collaboration and having the spaces to do that, having the ability to have a regulatory environment that supports that, having those collaboration and networking side, a softer side of these goals and outcomes being a priority. I think it's super important. Like, so, you know, we as both participants of the uh, ecosystem, enablers, regulators, people who form part of this ecosystem, I think we all play a certain role in that. This is one thing that I'm really looking forward to working with all these different players in the ecosystem to better facilitate. I look forward to 
having the space or having the forum or having the platform to connect informally. So those relationships and those vibes really do come through. And maybe that's just a glass half full for me. (laughs) Well, it sounds like to to you, it's all about supportive communities. And I I think that makes an Mm. awful lot of sense. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for joining me today. That was Jenny Au. She's the founder and CEO of Fund Fluent.